You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to A Slice of Cheese, the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheese is a delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. Making good cheese is not a simple thing to do. This week, a slice of cheese explores the care and skill that goes into making artisan cheese. I get insights into what makes great cheese from talented cheesemaker Martin Gott, whose acclaimed St James's cheese has a cult following, Adele Ravazio of Casa Rigoni in Valtaleggio, Italy, maturers of traditional raw milk taleggio, and cheesemonger Perry Wakeman of Renton Rind, winner of the Affineer of the Year Award in 2022. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. This week on A Slice of Cheese, we're looking at the craft of cheese, trying to get an insight really into the work and skill that goes into making good cheese. I'm very happy with me today, a wonderful cheesemaker, Martin Gott of St James's Cheese. Good morning, Martin. Good uh, morning, Jenny. Martin, I thought it'd be really interesting to get your insights into this because you know you've been making cheese a long time now and you're making you've made a range of cheeses over the years obviously St James is your most famous cheese I'd say but you're making a number of different cheeses now working with different with both sheep and goat's milk and I was just really interested to try and get a sense of of what someone like you who is making cheese in this way you know in a by hand on a sort of a farmhouse cheese from, you know, using your own milk. I suppose I wanted to ask you, what are the things that you do that can take a cheese down a different path? That's such a huge question. I feel a bit stupid, but perhaps you can guide me in a direction that would be an interesting point to start talking about. Yeah, so I mean, it, it's funny, every cheese type has lots of different, um, you know, every style of cheese and even variances within sort of makes and recipes have, have more or less control, I think, that you can exert on them, you know, from a sort of craft point of view. So I think some cheeses really are, you know, sort of a high level of craftsmanship. And I think other cheeses can be more of a process. I, I want to kind of open the conversation, just sort of open this with a, a quote from a, a, a Matteo Keller, who I was fortunate enough to spend some time with in America. And he, he put it to me like this, that, you know, if you were, if you were a carpenter, and you made nine beautiful chairs, but every tenth chair you turned out, you know, the, the, the wobbly, the wobbly leg. You know, you would, um, you wouldn't, you'd still be a crappy carpenter. <laughs> and uh, and I think there's a sense that like we can turn out amazing, fantastic, high quality cheeses, you know. But if we're we're also getting it wrong a sort of a, a repeatable number of times, so there's a there's a point where you, you're striving to make something that's that's good and repeatable a large amount of the time, and then and then there's there's ability within that to make some cheeses that really are just stand out and excellent and I think that would be the, the sort of the, the vision for us here that's what we would like to achieve is to be making out you know consistently good quality cheeses the majority of the time or, or a large part of the time but with that that craftsmanship and that technique and that skill and ability and the raw materials to turn out some really amazing you know world-class high quality cheeses you know as, as, as often as we can but striving to remove mm. the bottom level you know the wonky we want to remove the wonky right. chairs where we can um and, and yeah. sort of you know the wonky tables as often as we can and, and not forget that it's a food that people eat and enjoy and consume and that there's a level where you know a cheese that's not quite perfect can still be really enjoyable and really good and is still sustenance and nutrition but you know that also that craftsmanship or the real 
eye for detail, I suppose, leads to those one-off batches or those batches that from time to time just really, really stand up and, and sing and sort of just like a, you know, a, a carpenter who turns out a hundred tables a year, one of them is like his finest work, I guess, you know, or two of them is mm. the finest work. I suppose that's, if we were to view cheese making in that sort of craftsman style, I think that's a really positive way mm-hmm. to look at our business is to not forget that we're producing a product that people are going to eat, you know, and it's going to be eaten and tasted and enjoyed and then actually probably forgotten about to a degree most of the time, you know, and but within that there's room for excellence, you know, there's room for pursuing a sort of level of excellence. So. See, that's a really, yeah, that's a very interesting analogy. And so to take that idea of, you know, that you're trying to get rid of the wonky chair, the wonky table, if we think, let's focus in on St. James, because that's the, I'm guessing now that's the cheese you've made for the longest month. It's the wonkiest right. chair and the wonkiest table, I would say. <laughs> it's, the, it's the one that's given <laughs> us the funny. most challenges, because I think as we, you know, strive to do things differently and to break a lot of boundaries and, and uh, or, you know, to, 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 to break a lot of the rules that were perceived when I started making cheese, what could and couldn't be done. Um, I think we sought to, 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 you know, to challenge and test a lot of those. And I think we, we probably made, you know, we probably made a lot of wonky tables and wonky chairs along the way. And I think that like, as we look now more, our, probably as much as our reputation, we try to, 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 to make less of the wonky chairs and wonky tables. And how do you do, so I mentioned, how, how do you, you know, not make wonky St. James. What, what are the things that you, you know, what, what, the, what were the things that you learned? I mean, is it to do, you know, is it to do with the milk? Is it to do with the temperature? Is, is it quite detailed? I mean, she's oh, making, just, there seem to be so many different factors in it. Super detailed, you know, you know it's, it's, I guess it's, yeah. it's interesting. We work with this really seasonal milk, you know, that transforms the shift. So in January, we produce zero sheep's milk on this farm. You know, not, 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 not a drop of sheep's milk. In February, we produce some and whilst those sheep are, are out, you know, sort of lambing, and then in March we suddenly produce a fair amount. In April we produce a lot. In May we produce a lot. June we produce a lot, and then July we produce less, and on and so on until October, November, where we produce nothing again. Um, and all right. that time, that 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 milk is shifting and changing, and also the amount. So you know, to use the carpenter analogy, you know, we make no chairs in January, then we make a hundred in February, we make five hundred in March. You know, and I think that's that in itself makes it difficult to align certain mechanical bits of stuff. So cheese making is yeah. is you know is processing and you rely on equipment and tools and obviously you've got to you've mm-hmm. got to keep those equipment tools and and your timings and your time frame you've got to keep those relevant so you know you you need to have yeah. something that's going to be able to do the job with you know 20 cheeses and, and this is also going to be able to do the job with 500 cheeses and that's that's challenging mm-hmm. for saint james that gives us you know we can change vat sizes we can change vats cheese vats you know part way through a season we can go from you know, a, a quarter of a small vat to a half a large vat to two full large vats, um, and all the time that's changing. And if you're thinking about any sort of processing or engineering feat, you wouldn't set about um, changing the volume of, of a product you were going to make each time, or the you know you would if you're going to try and make something consistent, you'd try and iron out some of these things. So, so there's a sense for us that we're working with a bit of a moving target. But I guess that's where the yeah. craftsmanship comes in. Because learning to deal with that, you know, how, how high we fill the vats, there's all references mm-hmm. to it in, you know, books 100 years old that I have on the shelves about cheddar making and, you know, in, and even American cheese making back then um, from the sort of, you know, the early sort of pilgrims or whatever that were setting up cheese making out in the States over 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And they would talk about the depths of setting the milk in the vats, you know, that they would set, they would take a milk and if it was warmer or cold weather, they'd actually just put less or more milk in each vat because oh. that cooling and surface area, you know, that, that sort of, you know, the actual temperature of the milk and the, the way the milk's going to cut and transfer would would be different, right? Because they have different temperatures of the milk outside, different times of year. So there's a sense that like when you're looking at it, whereas we do it the other way, we have less in the vat one day. Um, we have cheeses that have higher fat, different kinds of fats. 
when the when the sheep are in the barn. That milk is different to when the, the grass is outside. So we try to make variances. So what do we do to alter it? We'll alter subtle things like that. We might alter how much we fill up the moulds, make slightly shallower, less deep cheeses or deeper cheeses. We'll cut and we'll stir more or less um, to try and achieve a similar moisture content. But I think one of the mm-hmm. things with our seasonal production, sometimes we have to alter that, you know, the actual very sort of product itself has to slightly alter through the season too. So we'll alter the, you know, the, the moisture content of the cheese and the depth of the cheese, the actual size of the cheese can shift through the year um, because we need to make those changes sometimes just to make the product uh, more consistent or a better quality with the milk we have. So it's right. like understanding if you're using, you know, the same wood all year round and it was different at certain times of year or, um, you know, you're using a different grade of timber or you, at certain times of the year, you was, like as I say, I'm, I'm trying to make an analogy to wood. I don't know why I assume everybody has some sort of <laughs> understanding of wood in a way that maybe, I, I don't know, maybe people do or don't. It's a good analogy. But I was actually, when you talk about the milk varying, I'm really interested because how... So your milk is being used fresh, isn't it? As a cheesemaker, if you've got your milk and it's gone into the fat, are there things that you look for? So if you spent like a year in the dairy, you know, you'd, you'd see these subtleties and these differences. How, oh. how to explain it? So like fo- foaming of the milk's interesting, you know, like actually when it comes to the pipe, it comes to uh, temperature, mm-hmm. you know, it comes to its speed. And just the actual, you know, you can see a foam on the milk or not at certain times of the year. Um, mm. And what does that indicate? Yeah. Well, generally like higher protein milks foam more in my experience. And then you've got like right. fats as well and how solid the fats are. You know, when we rennet the curd, yeah. you know, you, you set the curd with rennet and in that first stage, you know, when it forms a gel or a, cur- a curd mass, you know, a quick slap mm-hmm. with the back of your hands on the curd and you can oh. see fat and the way it sticks to your hand and feel it, you know, like just little, yeah. and that'll shift through the year. You get different, like a different viscosity of fats, different right. colour in the milk. You can literally see the, the milk will change colour, especially with regard to grass from being mm-hmm. in the barn. You can see a shift and a transformation. You feel... When you cut and stir curds, you can feel a glossiness or like a smoothness on the curd that you can't maybe feel at certain times of year when it's less fatty or more, you know, um, higher protein milk. You know, cheeses, then you're looking at the moulds, you've got more or less calcium deposits will be on them. That can be indicative of what's going on with our starter cultures. And then obviously we're doing pH monitoring and testing as well. So we know how much microbial activity is going on day to day. We test the moisture of the, of the cheese when we'll mould it, um, and that gives us an idea of how our work was the way the day before. So if you've done a certain amount of work right. to, to get the cheeses to a moisture you want, you know, and then and you're test, testing that the following day, and it's giving you different moisture readings, and you're thinking, well, I worked it to what I thought should do that, and it's not doing. You can look again and say, well, maybe we need to. Maybe it's deceiving you a little bit, and you'll actually need to, you know, to work the curd a bit more. Um, oh, so, there's, there's, so that's where we're using sort of, I guess, you know, that's us using a spirit level um, in our joinery analysis. You know, we can, uh, we can <laughs> I'm going to stick with it because I like it. And I'm coming with anything better as myself, so I'm going to thank Mateo and stick with that. But I think that you use the tools that are to hand to check your work, you know. Um, but some yeah. of it's in in the eye of the cheesemaker as well, right? You know, you can see. You can yes. see and you can feel it, and it's by hands, you know. Yes, you know, I'm not a cheesemaker, but I'm, I cook a lot. It's that interesting thing of, you know, when you do something a lot, you get to know, see the oil will ripple in the pan when it's hot enough for me to add something in, and there are lots of little things that you you get to know by the by the look. Yes, the look and the feel, and the, I think that's going to be, this is a beautiful piece of meat, or this is a beautiful veggie. You can just see the freshness, you know. And, you know, like, it's really fascinating. when you're, when you're yeah. cooking, you know, if you were... I don't know if it's just, yeah, probably more, more bakers or people, anyone who's ever worked with bread. And, you know, like if your room's a bit chilly and you can feel your sort of, you know, your, your hair's standing yeah. up on your arm sort of thing, then there's a sense that like that's going to affect it. And, you know, if then you're, oh, well, we've, we've got, the, you know, the heating's where everything's on full, but there's a bit of a, a draft or a chill or anything like that, you know, and then you're working through the day, you feel your equipment gets colder or warmer through the day. 
you know that that mm. sort of stuff like how is the equipment retaining heat how much you know um I mean, interesting. We did some work with a, with our pasteurizer, so we, we're making some pasteurized cheeses too now. So we run a pasteurizer, mm-hmm. which is a whole new you know ball game for us as well. Yeah. And um, one of the yeah. things that came up was the difference in in density of sheep's milk to cow's milk, um, and how that affect that different in density because sheep and cow sheep's milk has so much more protein and fat. The density actually yeah. affects the way that the sheep's milk holds temperature versus how cow's milk holds temperature. That's interesting. Which you're like, wow, that's a whole new level of thermal dynamics that I hadn't even got my head around. Uh, I'm ashamed to say yeah. after 20 years, you know. Uh, but that's the joy of, of this business is we we constantly learn. But um, with that in mind, you know how your product is cool, how the cheese is cooling that you've made how it's retaining its heat, how those, how different molds retain heat. So where we've trialed different cheese types, you know, a difference between mm-hmm. a stainless steel mold and a heavy plastic mold, or God, you know, if only we could have wooden molds, you know, those, how they mm-hmm. hold temperature and heat in a different way. Yeah. Um, and then watching that and assessing it, because obviously if you just made it and didn't pay any attention or observe, you could just say, well, all the molds are the same, right? They all do the same thing. But but having done it, you realize that actually that these little nuances and differences can make, can make big differences to cheese, you know, whether... Um, yeah, so, you know, the, there's lots of things, I think, but some of it's understanding what's going on outside. For us, it's easy when it's our own milk, easier. I talk about St. James being difficult because the milk's changing, but equally, we've such yeah. a connection to it. Um, I suppose we, we have a slight head start, you know, we've a slight advantage to people who are just getting milk from a farm or multiple farms they don't know about. You know, we, we know that the animals are in the barn. When they're in the barn, we know that they're out grass when they're yeah. out of grass and we know what that grass looks like and feels like and we know how that's going to affect, you know, the, the milk or the qualities or we have an idea of what it might do and might affect it. So I suppose there's some heads up there that we can make probably broader generalizations to do with time of year and season. Uh, whereas I suppose if you're just getting milk delivered, perhaps you don't have that information. It makes it uh, a different thing. I mean, raw milk's totally yeah. different as well. You can walk in the dairy and you can smell raw milk. You can smell what's going on. You can smell sort of changes. Um, you can't with pasteurized oh. milk that we don't get that difference um so that thing so how are you finding working that's really interesting so working with pasteurized milk was a whole new thing for you you can exercise a bit more control perhaps uh, it's diff- it's interesting because the cheese we make are totally different too so we're not making um right. anything like a saint james and also we're not making it with probably with the same end goal if you like you know we want to produce high quality accessible cheeses you know that we can sell and market locally and that we can sell to specialist cheese shops too um, but I think St. James is a real, like, a sort of a piece of work. It's, I have to say, it's still an ongoing project, you know, 15, 16, 17 years now or something like that. We're 17, I think we're 18. It could be 18 Gosh, seasons yeah. of St. James, you know, and each time the season finishes, yeah. we can think about what the new season cheeses might be like. Um, and, and, of course, typically, there's a period of complete stop. So any new staff, any changes in the dairy all get to be involved, but they have a period where there's no St. James made. So it's, it doesn't have yeah. that. Through the season, it has a great degree of continuity because it's every single day, seven days a week. But actually, through the yeah. off season, there's no cheese at all. So you could have worked for us for six months and only ever seen, you know, right? If it's wrong, yeah, six months, exactly. You know, um, right. and so there's a sense yeah. that actually that changes things. But equally, if you if you've spent six months making St James every day, you're going to have a real understanding of that cheese, you know, um, and a real feel for it in the vat anyway. So. So when we have, we have, we yeah. have sort of transient cheesemakers, people who pass through our business and, you know, partly because we never had the position for a full-time person anyway, you know, they were always seasonal mm-hmm. hires um, and, you know, people have passed through and it, almost people imprint their own, just, just like a, you know, a good quality craftsman in any business, they put their own stamp or identity on it, you know, and you see the cheese yeah. changes their skills and understanding change as well. And we're not, a, we're, whilst we have a clear vision of what St. James should be, the vision is it should be a full expression of our farm at any one time. So, 
if that means that you know we're busy outside or there's something going on on the farm or the business and somebody who's only been here three months is making the St. James on a Sunday that's a fairly accurate expression of our farm in that year and at that time so we don't we don't say oh it's only the master old Don Gott that makes the uh St. James you know we don't have that sort of you know that you've got to earn your rights to make it it's a case of who's in the dairy on the day and they'll make their best version of it and hopefully we don't you know that's not to say anybody walks in can get their hands in the vat Uh, but it's also it's part of our daily life here you know just like you you know you'd expect anyone who turned up to help to help milk you would expect anyone who turned up to help to help make St. James so I think it's a a very different thing St. James we're not after a prescribed or very clear cheese variety or texture or type or style um, and I'll be honest, we have more of an idea of what we like now. So that's not to say we don't mm-hmm. have, you know, a, a sort of vision of, of how mm-hmm. we could be, but that's not the, the yeah. be all end all. St. James is an expression of our farm on any given day, you know, throughout its production. That's what it should be, the fullest expression. So, yeah, whereas these pasteurized cheeses that we're making are made to hopefully to fill a slot on a cheese counter or to maybe for a dish on the menu, you know, and there before, right. you know, my, some of them like we're making a fair amount of, um, sort of cow's milk halloumi which we call anglum we call it but um we're making a fair amount of halloumi now and uh, and you know that's got to cook a certain way it's got to behave a certain yeah. way in a frying pan it's got to have a certain level of salt to match the dishes yeah. um so that's a real that's just a project for us in terms of consistent repeatable quality cheese that's going to fit the bill of a busy cafe or restaurant you know so yeah. we've got uh, yeah. you know a great great business one of our you know well possibly my favorite customer one i can't say that but our favorite place to eat anyway that's different and unusual and it's um bubbler they're called they're a restaurant they have two sites in london and you know that that, that restaurant uses a huge amount a huge amount of um of that cheese on their menu but they need it to be fairly repeatable consistent to cook a certain way to yield a certain way and to feel in the mouth a certain way so that's the that's the parameter so when we're looking at that cheese primarily we're looking at how it cooks and holds up in the pan you know the final moisture and the and, and the salt content yeah. and that that's it so it's we it's very much it's got a tight specification you know it's um so it's different right. so we're aiming for something but with that it's much clearer and easier actually so there's a sense that we make bigger vats we make more of it um but actually there's a very clear defined that's what we want it to look like you know that's what we want it to feel like that's what we want it to be and what did you find so much now this because you're thinking about the crofted cheese again um with different milks so you, so you were she, you, you know you've got the goats, I can't remember how many years ago. Was it uh, so goats five? we got in COVID, 2020, we took the goats on. Yeah. And so obviously you're working with a, with a different milk. Does that bring, as a cheesemaker, does that bring, <laughs> you know, what's it like to work with a different milk? Does it just behave in a very different way? Yeah, I think, well, so she, cheese milk, milk, interesting, we were like, we get used to working with sheets milk, it's what we know and what we do. But and late, and late and early lactation sheets milk is very, very difficult to work with. It's very late lactation, particularly difficult. And so, yeah, like I say, when right. you've got something defined like a like halloumi, where it has to be a certain moisture, a yeah. certain salt, making that with late lactation milks nigh on impossible. You know, we, we had some really tough batches right. at the end of the season last year just because we couldn't make it conform and fit that specification. You know, where, and that's where something like St. James makes a lot of sense because, you know, the late lactation St. James are a different beast to what we make mid-season. And we've got customers who love those late lactation end-of-season cheeses. Right. Um, but, you know, we, we accepted years ago we couldn't make the same moisture fat you know yeah. protein whatever salt content you know we couldn't do that the same with the late lactation yeah but yeah cow's milk we're working with really good quality cow's milk i have to say we're lucky we're working with uh, milk from james robinson uh, who's at strictly farm which is an organic mm. dairy shorthorn cow's milk producer and he's about uh, yeah. sort of 20 miles from us he's at kendall um so we did nip down the road we collect it 
Um, we bring the milk back and we make it into cheese. We've quite a good connection there with the, the bulk tanks next to the milking parlor. So we will chat to his, you know the family about what's going on with an idea of like carving patterns and things yeah. like that. So it's not totally disconnected, um, but it is very different to us to our to milk from our farm. Uh, and that relationship is different, you know, to, to milk that's coming in. Like we don't know where, exactly where the cows are grazing any given day, you know. But it's that's that's to be seen. We've been working with this milk since September, October last year, um, and we like it. We created a new cheese called Saint Sundays, which is a soft wash rind cow's milk cheese. So some similar, very much in style to the Saint James wash rind, soft textured but pasteurized mm-hmm. with a whole range of um, cultures that we sourced from a culture company in France to give it a sort of fairly oh. specific characterful rind and aspect and flavor um, and that's been really yeah. good fun it's been really well received the cheese was uh, we, we made about a dozen batches on the run-up towards Christmas um, and then we're making a couple of batches or a batch a week at the moment um, and that's that's nice it's it's a it's a different take and it's interesting seeing how that behaves compared to the wash rind St. James you know, cheeses again using different starter cultures so working with thermophilic starter culture instead of the mesophiles that we're used to gives us way more control mm-hmm. over the texture so we can make that glossy, oozy oh. texture. Well, not oozy, but certainly glossy yeah. texture, you know, yeah. that we're aiming for. Again, it becomes a bit of an, uh, an exercise in controlling moisture, salt and acidity. Uh, but we pasteurize milk that comes from a you know decent-sized herd and it's fairly predictable and, uh, you know, it's, it's, been, it's, it's felt not easy to make. It's had all sorts of challenges, but the challenges are just a totally different set of challenges to making small batches seasonal with raw milk. So Right. How interesting. Gosh, you I mean really, really varied. And what, um, to get back to the goat's briefly, what was, what was, how did you find goat's milk? Uh, compared to oh, the goat's milk's been, uh, the goat's milk's been a challenge because it's very different goat's milk. And I think it really does suit it suit best when it's made into lactic cheeses. That's the one thing that that cheese type really does, that, that we're not sort of geared towards. So there's a sense that we're compromising in our space quite in quite a large way to make these lactic style cheeses. Um, but we're having some good success. The ingot is a a goat's uh, brick that we've been making, and I have to yeah. say we've had some really good successful batches. Um, it's more. It's, yeah. I think it's more for us that they're a new herd to manage. So. It feels like a lot of the challenges for goats. The making has it definitely. We've had some challenges in the make and the dairy, but I sense that yeah. probably more of our challenges are outside. You know, on the farm, getting the the herd management mm-hmm. right, um, that kind of things. So obviously, yeah. the work involved in doing that whilst also running a, a busy little dairy business. You know, uh, making cheeses and milking sheep and all the other work. You know, so I think that coupled <laughs> with coupled with Brexit and being short-handed <laughs> and all the other things. You know, the whole staffing crisis the world's yeah. going through. So. So it's been a, I think when we yeah. entered into it, we didn't realize, you know, like anybody, we didn't know the world was going to change quite this much. But there's a sense that where we knew it was difficult to get staff, it's been virtually impossible for us to find people to work with. It. Yeah. Um, and so that's created extra challenges. But no, we, it's been, it's good. We like the goat's milk. The goats fit. They feel like they've been here forever. They certainly fit into the farm system. It's just figuring out, you know, how we'd like to manage them long term. We'd like to get them out to pasture. We like to kid most of them in mm. sort of September, which is different to, to how they're kidding now. So like more like an autumn, oh. an autumn kidding got a herd of goats. Right. Um, so we'd have a bit more cheese for Christmas, but also just so that they'd be under less grazing, under less nutritional sort of pressure when they're out in spring and summer. So um, so yeah, there's lots going on out there, and they become that becomes separate to our craft of cheese making, I guess. But obviously, so important in it. So how many cheeses are you making? <laughs> Loads, <laughs> um, but actually, we make we make on different days. So. <laughs> I've had people go, God, you must be, you know, mental. We're making... What's your furniture showroom? How many, um, <laughs> how many tables how many and chairs, chairs are in there? Well, <laughs> and so this is it. So we line up different production things on different days. So actually, 
you know, a really crazy nonsense day for us. I'd say nonsense is where we're working on, you know, probably four, you know, four different types of cheese going on in the dairy. And that's kind of, that does feel mm-hmm. like, but you know, we make, so we make a Lumi. Well, a byproduct of that is we make ricotta. So, so there, so there oh. you go. Well, that's one day you're making two cheeses, halloumi and ricotta. Um, and then in this, yeah. in, a, in a different, so we've we've two make rooms. You know, one that does the bigger vat stuff, and one that does the smaller vats of sort of raw milk stuff. So, so actually, we could be making yeah. Saint James ingot, halloumi, and ricotta on the same day, uh, which sounds wow. like a lot. But then actually, you know, the the, the the main vat's empty by because we make halloumi could be empty by ten o'clock in the morning. We have filled it, cut the curds, emptied it, and so that right. vat. Then we might make another oh. batch of say Holbrook or a batch of uh, Cullen, which is like hard or crookwheel, hard, any of the harder right. cheeses that we make. We can we can make those, you know, in following it. So it sounds a lot, but actually through the day. There is lots going on, of yeah. course, and then we're just trialing a feta at the moment for a bit of fun, um, oh, which would be nice. Just again, uh, just another sheep's milk idea, um, and yeah. so that's that's going on. So yeah, there is there is no no reason. I think we're fairly considered in our approach usually when we start these things, but um, it's managing and looking after them where we're desperately short of facility now for us is we'd like more maturing space. You know, maybe some different rooms oh. to keep some of these cheeses in where probably keeping more yeah. cheeses and we should in certain you know, more types of cheese together um, and to be able to, to be able right. to better refine the maturation but we, we've overcome things like that with the project like Cullum um, so Cullum is is right. the hard sheep's cheese that we make just for Paxton Whitfield yeah. um, and Paxton Whitfield obviously yeah. have invested a you know, yeah. big chunk of money in their facility yeah. uh, to mature cheeses so they take them relatively young and they mature them for us so it, mm-hmm. it helps us to overcome mm-hmm. that hurdle of maturation good, which when you're talking about the craft of cheese yeah, yeah. You know, maturation again becomes a whole new set of crafts and a whole new set of learning and understanding. Yeah, so, so to help to have them partnering yeah. with us on that is really helpful. Um, and again, yeah. it leaves room for more to, for another cheese type that we couldn't probably entertain starting that project without oh. their support and their help on it. So, um, and in a similar way, you know, Andy at the courtyard, he quite often takes uh, like crook wheel or Holbrook and he'll hold them and age them for us. So, oh. so we again, we might make a small run of batches. Uh, you know, when we've got a glut of milk for whatever reason, then he'll take them and he might keep them up to six months. Um, so that, right. again, just gives us, you know, that, that space in our facility to make more cheese types without having to have more hands on deck turning and maturing cheeses. And again, more more facility to mature them differently. So so I think that's a way that we're trying to, that's why we're trying to manage that side of it at the moment. You know, that sort of partnership aspect of working with wonderful cheesemongers like Paxton's or Courtyard Dairy, it, you know, that sort of support you know they want you to be making great cheeses and they you know it's a really interesting it's a sort of win-win isn't it for both of both people both partners yeah i think if we like you know interesting when you talk about craftsmanship you know what when is a established craft i think with cheese making in the uk there's also we've got some great you know established craft cheese makers you know like we've got the kirkham's lancashire's we've got westcom cheddar we've got you know montgomery's we've got these old established you know uh, really high quality artisan cheeses but there's, a, there's this also a sense that actually innovation is craft as well, you know, and that when and when you change the change design and, and having room for that. And I think that there's room for there's definitely yeah. room for both, um, but understanding yeah. how, how to build more of that innovation in. And I think that's where to truly learn to learn the craft, to understand these differences helps to create new cheese varieties. But with yes. that, there comes, you know, sort of further knowledge. We've learned a lot through making halloumi, right, about other cheeses. Just yeah. from making that one cheese, we've learned a huge amount about dairy processing or about dairy products and about our milk and about what we can and can't do, you know. And we've met new customers along yeah. the way. 
and identified new markets to sell to and new places that we didn't know about. But thank you so much, Martin. I don't know how you found the time to talk to me, but I appreciate you taking the time to talk it's to me. me. It's so, not just me. There's a yeah. team of us. And uh, mine's the, my, my bit's I the know, easy bit, right? Yeah, just yeah. basking in the glory of what we achieve. <laughs> Yes, the fame. Yes, heady stuff. But um, no, and I like thank you for that insight. I think so. You know, an insight really into sort of the hard work. It, you know, the work it takes to learn to do something well is really, which is also about craft, isn't it? So brilliant. Take care, then, thank Martin. Thank you very thank much. You. Thanks for that. I'm a huge fan of Peter's Yard's crackers, and they go beautifully with cheese. All Peter's Yard's crackers are made in small batches using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavour and crunch. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon and specialist food retailers. On a slice of cheese this week, we're exploring the craft of cheesemaking. I'm very happy to have with me today, all the way from Italy... Adele Arrigoni of Casa Arrigoni. Good morning, Adele. Good morning. Uh, Adele, as I said, we want to... Um, I was really interested in this episode in looking at what makes good cheese, the care and the things that are done that result in flavour and texture. But first of all, let's start with your, you know, your family story of this company. It's a very interesting story. Tell me a little bit about the background. Yeah, my company is based on in Valtaleggio, that is a really small valley on the top of the mountain, on the pre-alps, where the Taleggio was invented. So basically, the story of my company is much more about the story of my ancestors. Uh, they were farmers uh, that were used to live here and uh, farm cows on the mountain during the summer. Uh, and usually they uh, spend the winter uh, in um, close to the cities, uh, where the temperature was less uh, strong, less cold during the winter, and when they uh, and where they can find much more uh, feed uh, to feed the animals. Mm-hmm. So my grandfather uh, Giovanni Arrigoni started exactly in this way with cows moving from Valtaleggio to Milano uh, during the year. Uh, then in the 17, he decided to. Uh, sell all the cow and start to um, manage cheese, age cheese, selected the local cheese and sell them to people, uh, not just uh, in the mountain, but even in the cities around us. So the 70s was exactly the moment when my my company uh, became exactly uh, the kind of company that is now, uh, much more a company right. focused on aging and selection. Mm-hmm. We should just talk a little bit about Taleggio the cheese, um, which is a you know it's one of the great Italian cheeses, and its making is protected um, by what's called a PDO, a protected designation of origin, which lays out rules about where it's made and how it's made. Yeah. Um, but with Taleggio is interesting because it can be made with pasteurized milk, but also with raw milk. The, that's within the, the legal definition, isn't it? Now, yeah, at the beginning of the story, Taleggio was born as a raw milk cheese. Then, uh, between the mm-hmm. 70s and the 80s, uh, huge companies that was growing and moved from the mountain to plain decided to change a little bit uh, how to make the cheese. They decided to standardize in order to make 
huge quantities. That is more or less what happened to a lot of other uh, artisanal, traditional cheeses, not just in Italy, I mm. think all over in the world. Sure, yeah, all over, yeah, yeah. In France, in England, yes, yes, the same, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting story. I mean, yes, it's that move towards sort of industrialization and standardization. Yeah. And so, so obviously, in a way, if your company is focused on selecting and maturing, to give me some insights into So one of the telegers, so you have a raw milk telegger, don't you, that you offer? Uh, what we decided to do uh, several years ago, like 20 years ago, so not me, but my parents, <laughs> my mom, my uncle, and so on, is... Uh, uh, split the production and keep the raw milk taleggio production here in uh, Valtaleggio on the mountain, where wow. we have uh, right. few cows, but with a, a, a very high uh, uh, standard in terms of uh, lifestyles, in terms of uh, uh, pastures, uh, in terms of feed. Mm-hmm. So with this milk yeah. that is really rich really high in quality, we decide to don't pasteurize it. Obviously, uh, right. I mean, to keep on uh, uh, working in the world, uh, we uh, need also uh, a- another kind of taleggio, the pasteurized one, that is much more at first standard, and then uh, um, give us the possibility to uh, have huge quantities. Uh, that's the reason mm-hmm. why we, we keep both raw, and pasteurize right. together. Yeah. The, the way we age it, the way we select it, is completely same. We don't make difference between raw and pasteurize in terms of brushing environment we use. Um, I mean, all the practice around the the aging process. So, how old? Talk me, talk me through a telegio from making through maturing, and and because lots of people I think probably don't know it particularly well in Britain. So, describe, perhaps we should describe even with what a telegio looks like, its shape, the type of cheese it is. Set that context for us, Adele. To make the raw and pasteurize, uh, uh, the way to make it uh, is completely same. So, uh, milk, uh, lactic starter, uh, rennet, and that's it. In the raw, we don't uh, warm the milk and the pasteurize. Yes, of course, we have the pasteurization. After that, uh, when we have the curd, when the curd is ready, we put it in specific square molds um, on tables. And Talenjo have to stay on these tables between uh, uh, 24, 36 hours. Then, when the whey is completely uh, dropped off, we move it in plastic uh, uh, boxes. We receive the product mm-hmm. in our plant uh, exactly uh, in that moment, when the taleggio is uh, already uh, shaped, but really fresh, mm-hmm. uh, like three days, uh, between right. three and five days after the making. And mm-hmm. so it's really, really fresh. And at that point, what we do is something really specific uh, and really about how we decide to age talento. Because we move from plastic box to wooden, to wood boxes. Uh, it's really important this moment because uh, it's not uh, um, usual. It's uh, really something about us uh-huh. and few other companies. 
right now because uh, mm -hmm. uh, industry and huge companies prefer aged in plastic. It's much more uh, easy to handle plastic, to wash plastics, and the, the price of the box is uh, uh, lower. Tell me why. What's your thinking of what you're doing then? Yeah, because more or less it's the same for wine. Uh, when uh, you uh, let uh, a product that is uh, alive, is milk full of bacteria, mm -hmm. alive bacteria, and you let this bacteria um, have a dialogue with uh, another uh, element that is uh, uh, alive, if we can say alive, uh, it's really important the kind okay. of... Uh, um, dialogue that you can have between them. So the wood uh, is able right. to keep and uh, release uh, moisture, bacteria, molds. Mm -hmm. And molds are for us uh, really important. Yeah. Everybody in the world are really scared about molds. But we have to, uh, to know that molds uh, is equal taste. Without them, without bacteria, we, right. we don't have a lot of nice. uh, beautiful things that are really uh, important. So that's why uh, we want to work with these natural uh, elements, natural tools, in order to protect the molds, in order to protect uh, our signature. That is uh, exactly the, the, the word of bacteria and mold we have uh, in our tools and even in our caves. Because even in the right. case we have, we try to preserve this beautiful world. Right. That's interesting. And how long, so the telegio in these wooden cases, how long is it, um, how long do you keep it for? How long is the maturing period? Uh, the way we age it, uh, it's really slow. Uh, so we work with low temperature and high humidity. So we don't want to boost the aging process. Uh, that's why we keep the taleggio around 50 days. The, um, the PDO mm. say that uh, it's enough 35 days. But for us, uh, oh, okay. I mean, right. this period is not enough. Uh -huh. I mean, instead, uh, speed up the things uh, and maybe age with uh, a little bit higher temperature, uh, in a dry environment, uh, 20 years ago, we created uh, three specific rooms made by concrete uh, mm -hmm. that we refresh, we chilled using uh, cold water. So we don't have hair, mm -hmm. we don't have uh, medium high temperature, but we work uh, uh, as my ancestor used to age the cheese uh, 3000 years ago. In the past, uh, my mm. ancestor used the caves, natural caves, inside the mountain. Mm. Nowadays, this is, is not possible, okay? Because uh, you cannot um, control a lot of standards that we have to, to respect. Yeah. But what we try sure. to do is exactly recreate that environment. And is what we did. Wonderful. So tell me the results. So by the end of the 50 days maturing... What was a fresh young cheese? What does it does it change in color? Give us a sense of of the visuals and the the texture <laughs> changes that happen. It's, it's beautiful because you start with a white uh, cheese and you finish that the cheese is uh, uh, pink. Uh, oh, lovely. 
Yeah, it's really, uh, it's really beautiful. I have to say that part of the secret, not just for the color, but for the, the rhyme, because uh, Michael Eggio is uh, um, pretty famous for the kind of rhyme. We have uh, uh, this rind really um, thin, not high. Mm-hmm. So you can, mm. um, you, I mean, it's pink, so you recognize it, but it's completely part yeah, of the Yes, that's a really good point. I mean, that's a sign of good, of good cheese making, you know, isn't it? When exactly. a fine rind. Yeah. See, I mean, you can eat it because uh, taleggio is a wash rind cheese. Um, mm-hmm. But the point is that we brush weekly all the taleggio we have here. By hands, right. water and soul. Oh, okay. yeah. uh, and why it's really important to uh, brush really often? Because in this way you can uh, um, kill the black and brown molds with strong flavor, with strong mm-hmm. uh, taste uh, and smell. And you preserve this beautiful pinkish uh, uh, things uh, in, in your cheese that is Beautiful in terms of taste, smell, and uh, it's also beautiful to see. Uh, the way to, to get this point is take care weekly. Don't forget your cheese because you have to stay beside it and brush really often and, <laughs> and flip inside the box. That's really important. To keep it even. Yes, yeah, yeah. The shape. Um, I actually, I, I bought some of your taleggio to try, you know, for this interview. And complimenty. I mean, it's a very it's got a beautiful, full, complex flavor, I thought. For him, it was a very, it was a really lovely version of a telegio, um, with a lot of complexity, I would say, and, little t- and a lovely texture from the rind, a little, you know, that difference in texture between the rind and a very um, sort of supple paste inside yes. it. It was, I mean, it's really special. I mean, part of uh, this, the, the thing is uh, that it's, uh, it's a roaming taleggio. Nowadays, uh, I think we are the only uh, company uh, able to, uh, to sell a roaming taleggio. And besides the thing that already knows that roaming means uh, a lot of things, uh, you have to know uh, that this taleggio, first, uh, I mean, cows that live here uh, are part of a huge project, that we are, and we are part of this project. We follow this project uh, beside the local farmers uh, in order to uh, know uh, what uh, the cow eat. They uh, currently eat the 80% mm-hmm. of local herbs, uh, both in summer and winter. Uh, our cows that uh, are used to go on pastures during the summer, our cows really well uh, uh, controlled. Uh, so we reach this point uh, not just because it's raw the milk, but also because we uh, are completely uh, focused mm-hmm. on uh, the quality of the milk. Because it's not enough make it raw. You have to uh, uh, know very well how the milk is, what the cow eats, how the cow lives. And now we are we have this. Um, yeah. This net that co- that connects uh, my company to the local dairy. Uh, the local dairy um, is a dairy that uh, uh, buy the the milk just from the local farmer, and all the farmers are following a specific right. protocols. 
in terms of a lot of things. So what we are trying to create uh, is something really strong in terms of relation, trust uh, and quality. So it seems to me that your company is very much maintaining a tradition of making a taleggio in a particular historic way linked to place, you know, the, ca- the local cows, the local milk, the pastures from the mountains, from, from where taleggio was from traditionally, historically, that you are maintaining. And that seems very important to you, that you are maintaining this tradition. See, it's really important, but the thing that I love to, to say every time to everybody is not that we are here and uh, uh, we want to protect the tradition because uh, of nostalgia. It's not uh, nostalgia. It's uh, mm-hmm. uh, another uh, point of mm-hmm. view. First, uh, is an anthropologi- anthropological point of view. We need to um, find out our identity. And part of our identity uh, starts from our roots, from the place where we are from. So we are investing in Taleggio because we wo- I was born in Valtaleggio. But it's not because the Taleggio itself. Okay, we know it's a beautiful cheese, but it's not enough. It's because Taleggio is part of my story, the story of my family. And as human being, I really need to uh, find a place where I feel myself uh, rooted. So the first reason, it's really part of all the humans being. It's, I mean, food is exactly this kind of things. Food is something really able to connect people to the past, uh, to something really important for everybody. It's part of our identity as humans. So that's the first reason why we are investing in these things. And the second thing that is really important uh, is about practice. Our ancestors was able to invent something, invent something that is good. I eat it and I love it. Mm-hmm. They aged the cheese in this way and the <laughs> outcome was beautiful. So why I have to change something? If uh, the method they fa- found that out se- several centuries ago is still able to give us this kind of outcome. No, makes sense. So it's uh, something philosophical and something really practical mm-hmm. together. It's a kind of uh, mix between the, those two different things. Wonderful. Brilliant, Adele. Well, thank you. That was a wonderful insight into your into Taleggio and your, what you're doing with it. Um, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Slice of Cheese. Ciao, Adele. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. A number of leading cheesemongers and food shops stop Peter's Yard Crackers. One of these is award-winning cheese shop George and Joseph in Leeds. Founded by cheese enthusiast Stephen Fleming in 2012, it has acquired a loyal following for its friendly, helpful service. Find out more about George and Joseph over on the Peter's Yard website on their Speciality Spotlight section. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon and specialist food retailers. This week on A Slice of Cheese, we're exploring the craft of cheese. What goes into making cheese that tastes particularly good or has a fantastic texture? I'm very happy to have with me today to share his insights, Perry Wakeman of Rennet and Rind, 
Hello, Perry. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Uh, long admirer of the podcast, so I, I'm really oh, happy to be a guest. That's <laughs> like, music to my ears. You put a smile on my face. So, so Perry, I was really interested because, you know, what's sort of fascinating for me is when you start looking into cheese is the difference between mass-produced fetch cheese and craft cheese. It's very easy, I think, to get quite romantic about, you know, something that's made on a small scale Mm. or made by hand because they're sort of they're almost like virtuous words aren't they but I'm thinking but you know but I feel they are you know at their best they are real differences that you taste you know and I was really interested to try and get some insights into what those differences might be and I thought you seemed very well I mean obviously I'm guessing you at Rennet and Ryan you're selling craft cheese aren't you talk talk me through what you what you see as the difference between the sort of cheese you're selling and then perhaps the cheese that that would be sold on a Produced on a larger yeah. scale or in the supermarket. Yeah, it's, it's always a fascinating subject, isn't it? Positioning artisan and let's just say mass made to just kind of get those mm. categories. Um, and the, the important thing to remember, there's a place in the market for both. Um, yes. Obviously, we are 100% you know, artisan, what we do here, working with small British farmers. Um, and they both do two very different things, right? So, you know, craft is what I find is kind of more about, and this word has been dirtied a few times, um, but, but, but value, you know, people who are looking for an experience, who, you know, want to taste their cheeses and the nuances of flavour, texture that come through, the differences that happen between batch to batch, um, where, you know, the mass-made market, I suppose, are are going for one typical flavour profile and they want it to be the same every time. So that consistency, that hyper-consistency is really important. I obviously have a bias towards the artisan uh, um, cheeses, of course. So why why is inconsistency a virtue then? Because you, know, you, you can see why people would want yeah. to taste the same. What, what's interesting about inconsistency? It, well, it provides an element of that seasonality, you know, that excitement. Mm-hmm. I always, you know, as an affineur, that's what we do here, maturing cheeses. There's always that one type of cheese that I've matured that I'm forever trying to get back to that area. And there has to be so many different things, you know, kind of some of them flip of a coin that kind of come in the type of milk, you know, the the way the wind was blowing that day, what time the cows were milked, so many variables to get to Mm -hmm. that point where you have such an amazing, you know, out of this world experience and you know we're kind of almost like uh, collectors of profiles in a way that you mm. kind of always remember that time you know i specifically remember one and i've got a, a group of followers an amazing cheese called young buck which is yes. made by uh, yeah mike and um, yes he's brilliant isn't he i've interviewed yeah, him he's great character. yeah he's fa- fantastic and i always remember it's two christmases ago we had this batch which was just unbelievably savory you know real source of the earth the balance was kind of like perfect and i still to this day have a group of about 50 customers that if we get anywhere near that profile again they want it you know no no whole ah, yeah. you know, yes. charge what you want That's <laughs> yes. it's a blue cheese isn't it it was a raw milk blue yes. cheese being mm. made in northern ireland and, and yeah very yeah, isn't that interesting? I mean, I was wondering, you know, I was thinking when you, in a way, I was trying to get some insights into some of the realities. And I think it's worth talking about scale because mm. when you make something on a small scale, it does allow you to do things 
but you couldn't on a larger scale because you just wouldn't have the time to do it yeah. to that extent. I mean, it's something you see in preserving, for example. People will often, um, a preserver will say, I work in space, um, I cook in small batches. And that is a, and there is a really practical reason for saying that because small batches actually allows you, you know, not to overcook. It allows you to really control what you're doing. Is that something you see when you visit the cheesemakers that you're visiting? You are working on a on much smaller yeah. scale than some of the larger producers. Do you see that they can take that there is a care and trouble in the way that they're taking? Yeah. So so essentially, eyes and hands on cheese, right? So you mm-hmm. can deal with those nu- nuances and those micro changes in in the way the rind looks. You know, if you press the cheese and it's feeling a little bit hard, give it more humidity. You know, you can make those changes on a far, you know, quicker, smaller scale and on an individual cheese by cheese basis. When I suppose when you're looking at a mass scale production, you are trying to standardize your ingredients. And I use that term because, you know, they do your starter cultures, your milk all start to become ingredients, not to have those variables because you want to, you know, backpack them up, not traditionally cloth bound them. And put them in a storage house somewhere and they'll be relatively untouched to a point when they're ready. So those are kind of those differences that you can, you know, you can obviously do with, you know, uh, you know 500, 1,000 cheeses in your maturing rooms. But when you're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of blocks of cheddar, those, mm-hmm. those, those changes, you don't want to be paying people, I suppose, because that's another element of mass made profit is quite a an important factor in that area that you you don't want to be losing profit with people checking those cheeses on such a scale where a small cheese maker can do that. Actually, I mean, it's probably worth, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, the word cheddar is used to, you know, it describes a cheese, but there is, there are differences in, you know, what's called, it's called a block cheddar and a farmer cheddar. It might be worth talking about that, perhaps outline to some of the difference, because it's a very real, um, it's a difference we'd all be able to taste. You know, I think if I gave somebody a piece of a of a traditional farmhouse cheddar, like a Montgomery's cheddar that's been cloth bound and matured, and, some, and, and a piece of a, of a supermarket cheddar, which you know, is, and as you said, you know, it's absolutely got its place and it's a really useful, wonderful yes. cheese that, you know, that is a joy to cook with. But it's just a different thing. But there is a reason for that difference, isn't it? Perhaps we could talk about the difference between something that's made in a block and something that's been yeah. made, you know. Yeah. So I think the most interesting thing for me is almost when we're talking about there's kind of your block cheddars, then there's your kind of wax cheddars, and then there's obviously mm-hmm. your traditional cloth bound. And they kind of all mm-hmm. fit into this category. So you essentially, with a vat pack cheddar, you're not really establishing a rind as such. The vat pack becomes the rind of the cheese and you're locking yeah. in no mo- you're locking in all the moisture and you're making sure that no um, biome that's in your rooms can get into yeah. the rind of that cheese to affect flavour. Where with your traditional cheddars that are cloth bound, you are trying to harness those microbes that are in the air to land on the cheese and create different... because it's breathable fabric yeah. isn't it so that's the point so the cheese is so that process of maturing a cheese is a meaningful process because yeah you know because the, the cloth wrapping is allowing things to come through and to penetrate in the air and the microbes and to create a rind underneath it so there will be things happening and you would actually see that in the different you know, the, when you vacuum pack, you keep the moisture in. You know, that's the nature of vacuum packing, isn't it? And so there's a much wetter texture. is a moisture texture, isn't it, to um, a yeah. block cheddar. It's very different from yeah. something that's been allowed. When Jamie Montgomery takes his cheddar, he really 
they they dry out. He's that's particularly his house style as yeah. well. And and that's interesting that you say about the, the the smoothness and the texture that you can get from backpack in comparison to cloth bound. Because if a cheese that is mass made, these backpacks that we're talking about, doesn't achieve the standard of being creamy and smooth, it can be run through a machine which is called an extruder. So essentially, you're grating all those. You know, you're taking that hard block of cheese, grating mm-hmm. it all up, and then pushing it aggressively through a pinwheel, which creates these really smooth textures. Now, for Jamie to do that in an artisan way, he'd have to change his selective processes. So, you know, changing humidity, temperature, the way he's turning, brushing his cheeses, the length of time that he's maturing. I mean, that's a completely different kettle of fish in terms of the age that you'd have to get the same, you know, kind of upfront, the trifecta of a supermarket cheddar is, you know, salty, acidic you know salt and vinegar crisps kind of thing that hits mm-hmm. really hard jamie would have to bring his cheese on a lot longer and change his kind of subtleties of his make process to achieve that consistently but what you do get with artisan che- cheese i would say the one thing is length um, yes yes, yes. yeah mm. it's the one yeah. thing that if i had a blind tasting you know uh, that that would be the first thing i look for in terms of the length of the cheese, you know, and the complexity of flavour. But length is always very devoid in mass-made cheeses. Um, And that's designed for a reason. They want these big, impactful, addictive flavours, and then it dissipates, and then you eat another piece, and then you eat another piece, and then you need to buy more. So it's a. I always say it's one of those false economies, really, where, you know, if you get a Montgomery's and it's nourishing and satisfying and, it will tick all the boxes nutritionally and will tick all the boxes in terms of value that you really get that experience of an amazing cloth-bound cheddar the way it should be, where the kind of more mass-made are trying to do cheap frills to get you to eat more. Yeah, that's really interesting. In fact, I mean, that's that just kind of chocolate judging. Um, again, you, mm. you notice that with craft chocolate, it's very similar that the, the good chocolate delivers a, you know, a really long finish. Um, yeah. And you really don't need very much of it. You know, you just, you can just eat a square of it. And that's, and you've had a real short experience that stays on in your mouth. And, and it's very satisfying in a very different way. I wrote a book called Miss Ingredient, which explores the role of time in food and flavour. Because one of the things I wanted to try and get across to people was that to mature a cheese meaningfully and to check, so that, you know, so when you eat one of some of the older hard cheeses in Britain and, and cheddar is a, you know, a very famous British cheese and it, a lot of time has been put into that yeah. cheese to get it that when you're buying an artist, you know, when you're buying a Montgomery's cheddar or um, yeah, an Isle of Mild cheddar. And so, and that is obviously money. And they say, because these cheeses have not been shrink wrapped, they will dry out. They will shrink, you know, because they're yeah. cloth bound, they're not wrapped in plastic. So therefore, you know, they weigh less. I mean, it's just interesting, isn't it, to understand that? Talking about money, you know, how difficult it is for cheesemakers, we're starting to see, I wrote something about, you know, how we maybe need to protect the word artisan now, because Mm. it's easy to pay 10p, you know, for a big supermarket producer or, or a producer to put artisan on a cheese you know you can just pay for it it's not protected yeah. you can do that yes, and then maybe yes. you can charge a pound yeah then you can charge a pound more it's not so easy for a uh, artisan producer 
you know, Jamie, because we seem to be using Jamie today. To buy. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. to, uh, I can tell what our favourite cheese of the week is. Um, but um, <laughs> it's, um, he, he has to find millions of investment to get the machinery to really drive down those costs. And that investment just isn't around. So the point that I'm trying to make is it's, it's, easy it's an easy bit of trickery to create a block cheddar that has the label on artisan we're caught talking pennies but for jamie to become and have the benefits the cost benefits mm. of becoming a mass made cheddar he'd need to invest not that he would want to but he'd need to get millions of investment funding to yeah. to be able to see those cost savings what Jamie has done in a way is he's, you know, he's noted as a cheddar maker around the world. Yeah. And, you know, and that by, you know, that family tradition that his mother carried on, that he's oh, maintained. Phenomenal. And that particular style of cheddar, which is a much, which is interesting because there's a, there's a cluster of, you know, of, you know, he is not the only, no. it sounds like he's the only no. artist on cheddar making, which is he's not at all. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we should mention some other names and Keynes yes. and, and, but he's got a very distinctive style of, of cheddar, which I think is quite, Distinctive to Montgomery, yes. so I was, and I'm very fond of it. Sorry, so I'm pretty. Yes, yes. So am I. I, mm. I always describe yeah. it as my my uh, session cheddar. It, it, you can mm. you can just it, it, it's just it's not overwhelming, and it's got this nice like mellow notes that kind of you can just keep on eating and eating throughout the evening. That's why it's kind of my go-to. But I, you know, there's other styles. Yeah, obviously, Pitchfork, Westcombe, Quicks, Keys, yes, like you said. Uh, Pitchfork yeah. are doing an amazing work in terms of yeah. bringing all the big, you know, artisan cheddar maker yeah. styles all into one. And you've got Westcombe doing amazing things with their farm, regenerative farming. Which is another point about artisans, the milk and diversifying their breeds of cows. Yes. Um, and I think it's a really interesting point, isn't it? That, you know, a lot of the cheeses that you sell in your shop are, the cheesemakers are using either their own milk yeah. or they're buying in milk from a trusted source. Precisely. And they're very aware of the quality of the milk for cheesemaking. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely central to, that's where they start from. Yeah. And that, is, again, is something that they, you know, they're going to a lot of trouble and time to do, either through how they're looking after their cattle and how they've all kept them, whatever, whatever animal, yes, sheep, yeah. cattle, goats, the care and the, the feed that they're giving them, the pasture. And that when you, um, when you bulk make cheese, you know, that's not happening because it can't, the scale of the milk has been brought in from different sources and it's pasteurised. So then we have, so but we should discuss raw milk, cheese and pasteurised cheese. Yeah. Because that is definitely a, a difference, isn't it? That's some, not every artisan cheesemaker in Britain is using raw milk at all, but, but there are some that are very committed to raw milk. And what do you, do you and because they feel it offers a potential, I think, for flavour, is that how, we, how you see it, Perry? It's, um, I would say, you know, when I started sort of 11 years ago, even the, the star of Rennet that using vegetarian animal Rennet traditional, yeah. Yeah, you, you used to be able to notice those big differences. And I, I'm struggling to notice them as much, if I'm going to be honest. That's you know, yeah, yeah, that's what it, it, yeah um, it, it's the the the. What the you're saying, the quality is, is the great pasteurised cheese is great raw milk cheese in the yeah. world. So if saying, we take a yeah. look at you know the predominant uh, you know sort of um, you know David Jowett, um, Gloucestershire, yeah. predominantly his cheeses are pasteurised, I, I believe, if I yeah. remember correctly, yeah. and he's right. getting. Uh, insane flavor winning awards right? yeah, yeah 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 so the idea is you know and it's a very it's a great idea that you know that, that if you pasteurize milk you're knocking all good and bad bacteria out of it you're, you're you're losing all your diversification 
that's in the milk, your natural biome, things like that. Mm. And um, I don't think, and I don't know what it is, but that that gap seems to have narrowed a little bit, I suppose. Yeah. And I'm noticing I mean, those. It often comes down to, you know, the skill of the cheesemaker is this factor, isn't it? That, yes. You know, it is really interesting because you can, you know, we're sure we've eaten warm milk cheeses that are not very good and then you can eat a pasteurised cheese that's great. You know, that's absolutely yeah. true. But you might have, equally, you could have a warm milk cheese that's wonderful. There yeah. are lots of factors in them, aren't there? Yeah. But, but it, on, the, on the side of that as well is, is the mix of cattle that you have. You know, so you're yeah. typically thinking mass-made, your black and white cows. You know, they're they're kind of Ferrari. They use a lot of milk, don't they? I mean, yes, that's yeah. the reason they're very popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're looking at putting, you know, higher energy feed in to get a higher consistent yield in and a consistent value. So you're, I always liken it. I think I did just before. You're turning milk into a sole ingredient. Where you know, when you look at, you know, Westcom for example, and their project. The, you know, the regenerative farming and mm. the fact that I think they're bringing a bit of shorthorn cow, which is a kind oh, of lower yes. yield, higher quality yeah. uh, um, into their cattle, which is having amazing effects in their cheeses now. And then you've got the artisan that I use in Jersey, which is a notoriously difficult uh, milk yes. to make cheese out of. Um, yeah. So they will take those risks and, you know, those risks are are harder to work with but provide like some phenomenal outcomes <laughs> yeah no really interesting and we should i was thinking you know we've been talking about the making of cheese but we should just talk about the maturing of cheese and that's obviously something close to your heart Terry, because <laughs> yeah. we have got this wonderful title of, of you know <laughs> of the year and affinage the term is a french term it means cheese maturing just set that kind of in england i mean it's a we don't have that word, which is quite telling, I think, in a way. Um, we don't have an English word equivalent, but cheese maturing, I think, we'll have to do. So, yeah. obviously, so tell me about affinage, Perry, and what what you know what what it can do for cheese, and what you do to the cheeses you work with. Yeah, I'm just uh, absolutely besotted with the art of affinage. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm I'm in love with it. You know, it, when we sort of started out eleven years ago. There was kind of like this sort of, you know, separation in the track, which is either you make one single style of cheese and you perfect that, or you take on loads of different styles of cheese and you keep them and mature them in the best way possible. And I found that far more enjoyable. And there wasn't particularly mm. many people doing it, you know, back, back then. So we had to yeah. go to France and learn. Um, but it, it, forever and a day, it just fascinates me it's just so interesting to see you know and we're micro affiners as it were we we don't have large volumes to work with and to see the changes that you can have on cheese and how you know you can change the path of that cheese just it, it's just phenomenal by brushing it differently you know changing the turning schedule um you know you want your cheddars to be chewy to open up the mouth and get more complex flavors and get oxygen mixing in uh so so you you dry them out a little bit more you you move the percentages down by six percent and it creates this texture a nice mold develops on the outside so you use a brush to move it onto another cheese and that flavor mm. starts to to work with the other cheese or you do experiments with you know ben and sam who make an amazing traditionally cloth bound buttered wensleydale and we all got them in when they're a couple of days old matured them for three months in partnership with Andy at Courtyard 
dairy, Hafford were involved, uh, Mario from Yorkshire cheeses, and mm-hmm. and we all matured these cheeses. And the sole goal was to work out how do we get rid of this bitter note, which was annoying the cheesemakers. Uh-huh. And right. all, yeah, and and um, and yeah, all the cheeses, the base notes were all the same, very typical old Rhone but all very different. The half-odd cheese smell of their maturing, which you could have blindfolded me, I would have gone, that's, that's a half-odd old road. It's incredible. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so that's what we do here. And, um, and you know, the impact of how affinage and maturing cheese, I see so many people taking it on now, giving it a go, buying their own, mm. you know, wine fridges that control humidity and temperature oh, yes. and having yeah. a go at that, washing their own cheeses. And, you know, since yeah. I've won Affiner of the Year, so many people have been calling me for advice of what I would do. So, and, and I think it's the best way to get the most out of the cheese and, you know, get those profiles dialed into what people really, really like. And you know, it takes time, effort, money. I- it certainly does. I mean, yes, which is again why I wanted to, you know, draw people's attention to it. And that is something again that um, supermarkets just don't have the time or the capacity or the knowledge to do. So that's this is what I, you know, on a slice of cheese, I've always interviewed cheesemongers because I just think they're so important in the in the whole fitting of cheese as an ecosystem. Then the cheesemongers absolutely, you know, they are as important as the cheesemakers because yeah. a good cheese shop allows you to to try different cheeses, but they said to try them at their, you know, if they're really good, you'll be getting very fine examples of those cheeses. What I was yeah. going to ask you, Perry, is that Renat and Rind, if, as far as I can see, everyone's got their own style, the cheesemongers I talk to. They got, mm-hmm. you know, Andy Swinscoe, he likes his lunch a particular way, and that'd be different from how Neil's Dairy like it, let's say. Have you, are you, have you developed your own, you know, house style in a way? Of, and, yeah. and then perhaps you could talk us through one that, yeah, so have you got, like, think of a, think of a cheese and think of that you work on, that you perform, you know, that you've matured yeah. and tell us what you do with it and where you're trying to get to. Yeah, so I think our typical house profile, it's, 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 it is amazing to see. I've been in restaurants and not known we've supplied them, that's supplied them, that, that's terrible. And uh, it was actually about my brother's birthday. And he said to me, he went, uh, I'll go on, have the cheese. It would be fun, you know, and you can tell me what you think of it. And uh, the cheese came out and sat down on the table. And I, was, I wasn't I was even looking at the cheese. And I smelt the aroma of our maturing rooms. And I was like, mm. this is our cheese. And and texted the guys, and it was a new customer <laughs> who came on board a couple of weeks ago that I was un- un- unaware of. And our profile is is actually very savoury. I think that's what it oh, is. We try. We that, that's what we we find. That's the most satisfying note that people can get out of cheese, and it becomes the most mm. Moorish. Um, so, for example, the most recent one that I've been working on is a cheese which is a hybrid. Actually, it's made by a Bavarian cheesemaker and uh, uh, Devon uh, cheesemaker Quicks, and it's called Alpen Cheddar. Oh. And it's a wash right. rind cheese. So I've been aggressively washing it, actually, in a higher salt solution, which um, and then so that's about 10 and a half degrees. It goes from 13 degrees down to 10 and a half and then wash it when it needs it. First couple of months is twice a week. And then later months, it's once or twice, depending on how it looks. And that's come, it started out as a very brothy, beefy note, which is one of my favorites. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then weirdly took another journey, which became white meat chicken, which which was really fascinating. Um, so we like to get that length in there. I also like to play around with moisture quite a lot. I think that has a big um, part to play in the length that we get from the cheese and the complexity. So I like to get a cheese in, you know, that that typically we would mature at like 92%, you know, 88 to 92% humidity. Bring that all the way down to 75 just to see what would happen if it was drier. So Old Rhone, for example, we dry that out quite a bit and we think that adds more longevity and helps, you know, traditionally mass-made Wensleydales are uh, uh, crumbly, loads of moisture and citrus fruit and done, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, a yeah. traditional um, supermarket. Yeah. The old Rhone R&R matured Wensley Dow is acidic, but it's in lactic, sour cream, creme fraiche, double cream. And then right at the mm-hmm. end, it's so strange. It goes through this journey. When it leaves your palate, it just zips into kind of like citrus and then just remains for, for, for about, you know, three, four minutes afterwards. And it, yeah, it's a, it amazing. Someone said the other day, actually, um, it was Nick from Fine Cheese. We were having discussion. And um, he said, I wish everyone's first experience of Wednesday Dow could be Old Road. And I don't oh, think there's a better way to, 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 to sum <laughs> that up. Yeah, I think it's yeah. a, a beautiful yeah. thing to say. So you saying you dry that out then. So that's what you are doing in this for your customers is you're taking yes. it because you feel it gives it this, this length then. Is that right? Yeah. So, so lower the moisture and that will create a slightly more chewy texture that's in there and create more longevity. Washing Alp and Cheddar a little bit more kind of in a, a reused brine solution. So it's kind of like mother dough um, to create more savouriness. Um, another thing I love to do is create good biofilms, contact surface between the wood that we have in the maturing rooms mm-hmm. and the cheese and then getting fresh cheeses in and planting those cheeses oh. right on top to make sure right. that we've kind of always got this signature strain of, you know, flora on the outside that comes through. So it's, it's sorry, it's quite difficult to answer. Then I would say we definitely go for long profiles with a nod to savouriness in all our cheeses. Oh. But it does yeah. change all the time. <laughs> yes, no, that's that's fine. I was just, I mean, I think, you know, the things talking to Perry, you know, your your enthusiasm is so clear, and I think that's one of the the wonderful things about cheese is actually its complexity, isn't it? That it's not yeah. this world of let's call it artisan cheese. The cheeses are, you know, they change, they they present challenges, they present opportunities. They're interesting, aren't they? Because it's not it's not simple. It's yes. not like oh, A plus B. There we go. Dip dip dip. You say no. Everyone yeah. I talk to, they talk to the cheesemakers. They're always learning. That you know, people who the cheesemongers are learning, and I think that's what keep, I'm learning all the time, and um, and that's what keeps it interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We're always learning every time. I mean, there's no roadmap for affinage really in the UK when when I started. All the things that I was taught in France, I've tried different variations of them. I've got my mm. own kind of like school book, I suppose. But you're you're 100 right. The, the the hyper-focused on getting the best out of their milk, their cattle, their cheese is really what separates artisan. And if it's going to cost a few more quid, so be it. At least the, uh, the cheese will be better for it.
Wonderful. Well, that, I think that's the perfect note to end. Thank oh. you for your time, Barry. <laughs> no, thank Lovely you. Lovely to have thank you, you on the programme. It was so yes, nice. Yes, I thoroughly really enjoyed Barry. myself. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it, To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Thank you so much for listening to A Slice of Cheese. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you've found this podcast. It will make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.